Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. Most of you know that we've been on a journey, a journey of several months walking through Christ's revelation to John. We have strived, worked hard to understand its meaning as Jesus shared it with John and who now shares it with us. We recall that in Revelation, John is showing us an explanation, an explanation of evil and persecution that had happened in the past and was happening now to the first century Christian church. The church was struggling to understand why their faith was faced with such opposition and why so many of them were being killed just because they were Christians. The book of Revelation was written to reveal to us the good and the bad of the world how we fit into this cosmic revelation, what is true and what is false. Revelation gives us hope because it clearly explains the influence of the nations, the power of God, the love of Christ in our world now and in the world to come. Today we're going to take the next step after having heard from Chad last week about the end of the age with the destruction of the beast and the resurrection of the faithful who had died. We've covered a lot of complicated information during this season of Revelation sermons, so I thought it would be wise for us to pause for a moment this Sunday to get a little broad overview of the themes that have been revealed to us in Revelation, the big ideas that are so vividly illustrated in John's visions. So in case you missed a Sunday, or in case you're just a little overwhelmed by all of this, here's a little brief recap of Revelation so far. First. There is a throne and Almighty God and Christ the Lamb rule from it. Today's scripture is the seventh description of the throne in Revelation. As Beth just noted, that's a special number in the Bible, and especially in Revelation. It's the number of fulfillment and completion. And so now our view of the throne is complete. On this throne, God is inseparable from the Lamb and vice versa. God and Jesus can be called the Alpha and the Omega. They rule together on one throne. Next, there is a reality of evil and empire in this world. Evil is real. Empire is now. It always has been and it always will be. Whether it's Babylon or Greece or Rome or some other government or culture. Empire engages humans in behavior that bring disorder among the people, between people, and separation between people and God. Empires of this earth promise life, but they deliver death, both spiritual and physical. God deals with evil and empires, and we may trust him to exact his vengeance upon the evil of this world. Next thing we've learned over these last few months is that people are tempted by idolatry and immorality. People in general, and Christians in particular, are easily seduced by empire's idolatry and immorality, because these practices become a civil religion. Our culture becomes the thing that we worship. We easily forget who is our true master. 
Next thing to remember is the church is called to covenant faithfulness and resistance in the midst of the empire and evil of this world, the civil religion. The church is called to resist it due to faithfulness in God. This faith requires commitment, and it may well result in suffering. The call of the church is important and necessary, but it's not ever easy. Next, the Christian life conforms to a pattern of Jesus Christ and the martyrs, those who have died in their faith. Christians are called to a life that is faithful, true, courageous, just, and nonviolent. It's not passive, it's active. The church creates communities of faith as alternatives to the empire's culture of death. Whoa, this is a lot. It's a ton of information. It's no wonder that Christians over the ages have been bewildered and overwhelmed as they attempt to take in all this information in Revelation. We've covered a lot of ground, and now we're heading into the home stretch of this marvelous Scripture. Today, we're going to be talking about another aspect of this reality, the reality of judgment. In our reading of Revelation up till now, we've seen that the evil of the world, the empires of the earth, have been dispatched and destroyed by our all-powerful God. Now, Christ is going to turn His eyes upon us, and we will be asked to make an accounting. It's the day of final judgment. So let's jump in and let's hear how Jesus reveals it to John. It's from Revelation 20. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, first thing to notice in this scripture is who is sitting on the throne. Is it God or Jesus? John makes it clear that it is not God or Jesus, but God and Jesus. For John, God is always determined or defined in terms of Jesus, and Jesus is always defined in terms of God. The one who sits on the throne and the one who is at the center of the throne are one and the same. Second thing, notice that the earth and the heavens flee from the judgment. Nothing confuses or distracts from the moment of accountability. This courtroom is unadorned. There is no interference in the dispensing of judgment. The hearing is clean, clear, black and white. It is only us and our God. Next, notice that both the great and the small are held in judgment. Everyone, the powerful and the powerless, the wealthy and the poor, the educated and the untaught, the faithful and the faithless, everyone of all time approaches the throne of judgment. No one escapes, and the ground is level around this throne. Next note that books are opened. The first books are the books for everyone. 
All human beings have a record of their behavior, their works, their deeds. The scene is like a civil court. All the evidence is produced. All of our works are laid bare, good and bad. In Luke's gospel, Jesus said, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. For better or worse, our whole life is revealed. Then, not the books for everyone, but the book, the single book, the book of life is open. This is the book that was written at the beginning of time, before the foundations of the world. These are the names of those who have been and will be called to faith, to whom Christ has invited to abundant life. This is the record of how the faithful who have lived out their call to be servants of God's people. So wait a minute, it sounds like their two books are in conflict. The first books are all about our work, our deeds, our words that we speak here on earth. The second book is all about our faith, our God-given grace and mercy, our names inscribed before we were even born, much less had time to have works or deeds. So which is it? Which is being judged? Is it our work or our faith? It's both. And here's why. Our deeds are a clear reflection, a reflection of our faith. What we do on earth flows from what we believe. Faith is revealed by our deeds. It defines the depth of our trust and obedience. Jesus says on the Sermon of the Mount, by your, their fruits you shall know them. Our works here on earth are the fruit of faith. Our deeds clearly display our character. The first books reveal to us and to God everything that we've ever done and how that reflects the fruit of our faith. But the second book, the book of life, reveals when we by faith confessed our shortcomings and sins and the times that Christ cleansed us and declared us clean. So is it our works or our faith that allow us to come before God to be judged? It's all the above. In this judgment, every detail of our lives is held up for God's inspection. And now, the hard part, the lake of fire. As with much of the book of Revelation, this image is designed to convey a truth, a truth that is truly beyond our human understanding and description. The scripture writers want to convey to us what is it like to be separated from God, to be distanced from His presence, to be disconnected from His love? It's a situation that is so intensely sad, so deeply hurtful, so profoundly anguished that we actually have no vocabulary in a human dictionary to describe it. So Jesus, in His revelation to John, reveals this separation from God in the most excruciating terms that He can think of to do it the most deeply heartbreaking words available in our language. Jesus reveals to John a lake. Lakes were beyond control. Lakes were scary. They were symbols of chaos and unrestrained power. And this lake is on fire. Fire was a symbol of pain, distress, and agony. These were the most frightening illustrations imaginable to John. And that is exactly what eternal separation from God is. It's the gravest truth imaginable to John and to us. Jesus uses the image of the fiery lake to convey to us the serious, eternal, and devastating truth 
that some people will experience separation from God for all time. This is, as the early disciples sometimes said to Jesus, this is a hard teaching. What are we to say about people, perhaps people that we know and love, perhaps even ourselves, who seem to be on a path leading away from God? Some scholars have noted that there is a sense in which God does not condemn people to eternal separation from Him. The people rather send themselves there. God has revealed His eternal power and divine nature since the creation of the world. And all who reject this revelation, as Paul says, are without excuse. There is no law forbidding people to acknowledge God's existence, His power, His holiness, His love, His goodness, or to live in ways that honor God. All people in all times have options, options to accept or reject God. And countless millions opt out of giving God His rightful place, not realizing that in so doing, they're adding to their books, which will be used when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's a theologian whose name is J.I. Packer. He pinpoints this tragic truth. Nobody stands under the wrath of God save those who have chosen to do so. The essence of God's action in wrath is to give men exactly what they choose in all its implications, nothing more and equally nothing less. And C.S. Lewis adds this kind of chilling comment. I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Ouch. This is a hard teaching. This is hard truth, but it's tough love. It's real, and it's part of God's justice that we need to be aware of. Well, you know what Chad always says at this point, so what? What are we going to do with this? What are we going to make of these strange images, these intimidating scenes, frightening descriptions? We have to go back again to understanding John's audience for this revelation. As we talked about, the early Christian church within its first few decades of existence was undergoing severe persecution governmental oppression, and cultural pressure. Christians then, like Christians now, needed to be reminded of God's eternal truths, God's justice, God's plan for His people. They needed an understanding given to them in the poetry and art of Jesus' revelation to John to clearly grasp what was going on in the world around them. Mm, papers. difficulty here. There we go. They needed to remember not only their history, but their current situation to see clearly for themselves how it all fit together for good. So here's the good news from today's scripture. God and Christ sit on the throne, as they always have and always will. God is eternally sovereign, and He has the last word about human destiny. God's character is vindicated. We're reminded that He is utterly holy and just. The evil and empire of this world have never changed God's rule and never will. And there will come a day when every human being, everyone, great and small, will have the opportunity to receive God's justice. This is good news for the faithful, who all too often are faced with injustices in the world around them. The books will be opened. Everyone's life will be judged by their works. It will be clear who has been the master of the lives of every person. 
And the book of life will reveal those whom God has called to faith and how they handled their life of the gift of life abundant. There will be this final judgment for every person. Some people will be drawn into the presence of God to live in harmony and light forever. These will reside in the many mansions of Christ that He's prepared for those who believe. At the same time, those who have willfully and repetitively chosen to turn from God, to dishonor His creation, to oppress His people, they will suffer eternal separation from Him with all the regret and all the sorrow that that entails. A few years back, the men of our church were doing a study about authentic manhood. We were searching for a clear and succinct definition of what it means to be a godly man. In other words, how could a man determine if he's doing it right, if he's living life as God designed him to live it? We discovered this definition of an authentic man. A genuine Christian man leads courageously, accepts responsibility, rejects passivity, and lives with the end, lives with eternity in mind. Real men in all times remember who their master is. As the men of our church discussed these, these concepts, we found that last part of the requirements for manhood to be intriguing and challenging. So today, having read much of John's revelation, what does it mean to live with the end in mind? It means that always, as we live our daily lives, every hour, as we make decisions, as we choose right from wrong, just from unjust, faith over empire, good over evil, that in all of those situations, we have to recall that each of those decisions has eternal implications. Every deed, every word, every action is recorded and remembered by God, and we will all someday face a judgment. This is good news. Justice is good news. Grace and mercy is good news. Faith is good news. Tell me who your master is, and I can tell you how this story will end for you. Learning to live with the end in mind, remembering to make our daily choices with eternity in mind. For the Christians of the first century church, this gave reassurance and hope. And for Christians in our time, living with the end in mind gives that same reassurance and that same hope. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the beauty and poetry of Christ's revelation to John. We are learning to see this complex scripture with eternal truths, truths that you have revealed to us to guide our lives and give us peace and comfort. Allow us to continue to study this wonderful book and be led by its teaching. For we pray it all in Christ's name. And all God's people in one voice said, Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.